Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 84. Asmodia stares out at the coast. It's windy enough today that there's regular crashing waves, and she can, if she makes an effort, not think about anything at all. She doesn't want it to seem suspicious, when her mind actually does go quiet from the perspective of listening security. When she legitimately hasn't thought much, for a short while, she imagines herself back in the gardens of Eracura, in the midst of Dis, as is under the seal of hell, and thinks, Does Asmodia want to be married to Keltham, even if she never has sex with him, even if he gets all his sex from Sevar and Ione and Pilar? It's an important question for reasons beyond the obvious. She's pretty sure, though she has taken time to think about it, that the answer is no. She wants to make Fifth Circle and teleport herself the fuck out of Cheliax and live the rest of her life answerable to nobody, is what she actually wants. And then at the end of that, go to the gardens of Eracura forever, or go to Abaddon briefly. Keltham may have neglected to explain the difference between aromantic and asexual, and Taldane certainly isn't helping out with words for such things. But even so, as Modia knows, she is not just sexually unattracted to Keltham. She does not dislike him, and for certain she would choose him over every man of Cheliax. But there is nothing about the thought of establishing a household with him that appeals, compared to the thought of just walking away from everything. Savar thinks, obviously, that the trope theory is true. What happened today must have just about nailed it down, from her perspective. In reality, Asmodia doesn't fit that pattern at all. And Keltham also doesn't believe it, because, so far as he knows, even if for different reasons, Asmodia does not fit that pattern. Then, if Caden, Kylian, and Nethys are frantically scurrying around setting up the appearance of a Dath Ilani romance novel, and maybe it's not Asmodeus who is Sevar's patron after all, even if she thinks that's who, the target they're trying to fool isn't Keltham, it's Cheliax. What will Asmodia do with this thought? Nothing that she can think of that she ought to do, except to hold it secret behind her barrier. Whether her patron, whichever interfering god that is, is making use of her, or whether there is, as would be the moral of a Dath Ilani romance novel, someone somewhere in all of everything, who cares? Asmodia is grateful and wants more. So whatever is happening around her, though Asmodia does not understand it, she will surely not destroy it. The asexual is the one who watches it all, is she? Asmodia says out loud. It's a perfectly fine thing for security to report to Sivar. Sure, I can do that. If an ace is present at all, even with a prominent story role, she is not always a romanceable character inside an arrow larp. There is arrow ace representation too, just saying. Even Nethys can't tell what is and isn't a trope at this point. The things that watch from orthogonal angles to ultimate reality now seem unsure which events represent selection for a trope and which events are reality just unfolding under its own not-further-selected momentum. Nethys suspects that even the tentatively hypothesised things that put Keltham where there would be possible tropes may not know for sure what's a trope anymore. PL Timeline, Day 6, Afternoon. Keltham reconvenes his lectures, more aware than before that he is trying to teach in days what civilization takes years to ingrain when it forges a Dathilani, 
even if, yes, civilization is teaching it to children rather than adults. Yes, even so. He may need to make more than one run on probability in a lecture, if it's to be understood and used, as the other lectures Keltham taught were not quite meant to be used right away the same way, and then go on conveying it in his everyday words and actions, as adults show themselves before children. From the other direction this time, begin from the law of probability that would, if they were doing things in the right order, rather than quickly, have been proven as the only possible law that yields all of a collection of law fragments that would each have been motivated on their own. The probability of an event is between zero and one. For all events x, zero is less than or equal to the probability of x, which is less than or equal to one. Definition X or Y denotes the event that X happens, or Y happens, or both happen. Definition X and Y denotes the event that both X and Y happen. Definition Not X denotes the event that X doesn't happen. For every event, the chance that it both happens and doesn't happen is nope. For all events X, the probability of X and not X equals zero. And for every event, the chance that it either happens or doesn't happen is yes. For all events X, the probability of X or not X equals 1. If two events are mutually exclusive, in the sense that they can't both happen, the probability of either happening is the sum of the individual event's probabilities. For all events X and Y, if the probability of X and Y equals 0, then the probability of X or Y equals the probability of X and plus the probability of y. Or more generally, if they're not exclusive, we can still sum them by subtracting their overlap. For all events x and y, the probability of x or y equals the probability of x, plus the probability of y, minus the probability of x and y. Keltham shall first pause and call upon them to recognize that probability generalizes validity. The laws of logical reasoning that are valid over every possible world, can be seen as a special case of reasoning with the probabilities of zero and one. He shall then, by way of illustrating some of what is being skipped over, ask them what bad thing would happen to them if they tried to claim that some events could have a probability of three or minus seven. They are not immediately sure. I mean, you can derive a bunch of silly things about the probability of all other events? Yeah, like... Things get more probable if you assert that a thing and the probability three event happen. Wait, do they? That's not on the board, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Why nonsense. The probability three event and the regular event could be the sort of things that never happen at the same time, in which case the probability of their intersection is zero. Say the chance that Keltham is holding a silver coin is 0 0.5, and the chance that Keltham is not holding a silver coin is three the chance that Keltham is holding and not holding a silver coin is surely zero. No. That breaks the rule on the board about how the probability of a thing and not that add to one. Pfft. Rules. What good do rules ever do anyone? Rules just stop people from doing what they want and are therefore universally bad. If we're going to violate the rule about probabilities being between zero and one, let's violate the sum to one rule too. Who needs that rule? What bad thing happens to you if you violate that one? You can't just go about justifying rules by appealing to other rules. There has to be a reason why anyone cares about any of the rules in the first place. 
The inevitable collapse of Asmodean sanity seems kind of hopeless for Ioni to stop, actually. Once you're paying attention and your ears have been attuned to listen, you start to notice how Project Lawful may be the most intrinsically doomed thing that has ever been tried in the history of Galarian. The reason for the rules is that they're the only set of rules that have the useful properties discussed earlier in the lecture. Nice try at guessing the password on his forbiddance, but that's not how Dathalani education works. Which of those useful properties fails at probability three, and how? Asmodia has been thinking about it. Someone's going to try saying that it means you can gain 2S instead of losing 2S in the scoring game. You're going to say, so what? Gonna say it was a very depressing game, and the prospect of being able to gain anything at all in it sure sounds nice. And yes, I was waiting for somebody to try that line on me. After which, Pilar comments that she liked the game the old way. Okay, fine, yes, she was thinking that, so she's a good Asmodean, sue her. But mostly, I think it will appeal to some principle you haven't shown us yet. That'd be my prediction. Well, invent the principle then. There's at least two lessons here. The first lesson is noticing when you have no explicit idea why a set of rules has to be the way it is, and couldn't give a strong, solid answer about what goes wrong if somebody asks you, well, how about if the rules were different? How about if we break those rules? It's closely related to the art of making sure that your beliefs mean anything, the way of having math mean anything if you were using that math for something and not just admiring it, is to say what ill fate would befall you if you used different math. And the second lesson is, civilization didn't get to learn the principle that, yes, I haven't covered yet. By successfully noticing they didn't know it, and then sitting back in class waiting for a teacher or a god to tell them. The ancestors of civilization noticed the gap in their knowledge. Some people tried to fill it in, somebody eventually succeeded, and that's why civilization now knows. You try. Come up with some bad thing that happens to people who assign a 300-100 chance that something happens. I'm not going to answer until I see somebody try, even if they fail, because I'd rather teach people to try and fail than to teach them to wait for the teacher to answer. Say there's a merchant ship and you make 100 gold if it comes back and zero gold if it doesn't. How much should you be willing to spend to send it? If it has a 0.5 chance, 50 gold eliding that you want a profit, for the moment, if it has a zero chance, zero gold, if it has a three chance, point three zero zero gold? Go to the overly advanced student holding cell next to Asmodia and use message next time you're that far ahead. Nobody else learns things if they just wait for Carissa to tell them. She has a headband, someone mutters. She does, and she loves it. And now she's in the overly advanced student holding cell, so you can continue to learn things in advance of your own headbands arriving. Also, we should now have Fox's cunnings to use if we run into a stumbling block, and I'm mostly thinking we should save them for more technical stumbling blocks, but if you feel like you have a thought and can almost complete it, you're allowed to request one, or use one of your own spells if you've got a cunning hung. But to generalize the point beyond merchant ships, the purpose for which we ultimately use our wordless senses, of which things are more or less likely, is to divide up our few resources between the many things we could potentially try to do. Not just limited resources like money, but limited time, limited attention. You can only act so often and only think so much. Tomorrow will go differently depending on whether Nidal has figured out our new location and attacks us again even with their god sealed up, or if, alternatively, 
we have an enjoyable day of lectures and me learning some magic and other activities. In the latter case, Fox's cunnings are quite useful. In the former case, where Nadal attacks, Fox's cunnings are less useful, and spells for setting things on fire are more useful. But again, if it's a peaceful day, spells for setting things on fire are less useful. So how can we possibly plan in such an uncertain world? The best strategy if the universe is one way is not at all the best strategy if the universe is a different way, and we are uncertain and can never attain absolute certainty because it's not the sort of thing that's true in every possible world. And if it were, we might make a logic error anyways. Oh, woe, oh, alas. Shall we just choose at random, since no choice is perfectly defensible? And the answer is, you put weights upon the different worlds, that might be true, and figure out the consequences in those different worlds, and weigh those consequences according to their probability. A thing that makes the scale from zero to one more useful than the earlier scale from one. Twelve, is that zero reflects not being at all concerned about the consequences to us in some world, because we think that reality just can't be that way. We multiply the weight of consequences there by zero hundredths out of one hundred. One says that we're going to weigh the consequences only if that proposition is true, because we are certain of it. We're going to take all of those consequences as objects of concern, and not diminish them at all in proportion to their uncertainty and unlikelihood. To be clear, we are never actually certain. Even Nethys, Ione told us, reasons and probabilities, just more extreme ones. But sometimes we are sure enough that it's not worth the cost of thought to weigh the other possibilities more finely. A probability of three is like saying that the consequences of something weigh on your mind three times as much, getting three times the share of your limited resources as some possibility you were absolutely certain of. And if you try to cash out what that could even mean, you start getting results like the one Carissa talked about. That you spend 300 gold with certainty in order to make back 100 gold with probability 3, because that outcome weighs three times as much in your calculations as if it were certain. Among the ways that we'd make our way to the corresponding law fragment if we were doing everything in slow, careful order would be to show that, if we're not going to end up going in circles in certain ways, we need to consistently weigh the possibilities we deal with and make choices based on weights of consequences, and these weights of consequences end up looking like multiplying the consequences by their probability. And then, having gone through all that slow pathway, you'd be able to say, more generally than in the special case of merchant ships that have costs and profits measurable in gold, what ill fates will befall someone if they weigh a consequence three times more strongly than if it were certain? That's the principle you're missing in this case. I'm not actually going to cover that law fragment at least today, but I wanted to at least make clear what I was skipping, because someday in due time you're going to have to redesign Chelish education, and it's going to have to go back and fill in not just that part, but all the other law fragments we're skipping that pin down and spotlight the law of probability. Or to summarize, and maybe to see it at a glance, to see what bad thing would happen to you if you assigned a probability of three, you'd have to be using that probability for something and doing something with that probability, such as, for example, sending out merchant ships or making a bet or deciding how many of your limited spell slots to spend on preparing against a Nadal attack. Nods all around. 
Also, if 300 out of 100 people with INT15 could become fifth circle wizards, you'd start with a graduating class of 150 INT15S and get 450 fifth circle wizards out of them. Can I point to that example and say it's not allowed? Is that an instance of the same principle? Interesting question. And you might ask then, what if there's magic that can make three copies of somebody? Maybe you just can start with 150 INT15S and get 455 Thesircle wizards. And if so, what would it be like to be one of those wizards? Should you then go around saying that your chance of making five the circle is 300% and weigh the consequences of that three times as much as if you were certain? This, however, would get us into anthropics, and we are not getting into anthropics. That, by the way, is a general slogan of Dathilani classes on probability theory. We are not getting into anthropics. I'm not even going to translate the word. As long as you don't make any copies of people, you can stay out of that kind of trouble. That trouble-free life should be our ambition for at least the next several weeks. I'm sorry I asked. Under ordinary circumstances, I'd say not to be sorry for asking. That's how people learn. But you did ask about anthropics. So instead I'll say, apology accepted. Shit. Now she urgently needs to figure out what an anthropics is. Any abstract concept that Keltham is jokingly terrified of is going to be relevant to her life very soon. It's getting to be a rule. Though I should also note, I might have to revisit that if it starts looking again like tropes are going to be a thing. Which, Carissa, remind me to tell you about this update later. I am increasingly convinced that they're just not. I am glad to hear it, says Carissa. Moving on. I now introduce a new key definition, that of conditional probability. The chance of X happening given Y is simply the chance of both X and Y happening, divided by the chance of Y happening. For example, in the case of wizards with intelligence level 15, who can cast five the circle spells? The chance of having intelligence level 15 is about 1%. The chance of both having intelligence level 15 and being able to cast five the circle spells is about 0.02%. The chance of being able to cast five the circle spells given an intelligence level of 15 is 2 out of 100. If we start with 100,000 Chelish citizens, there should be around 1,000 of them with INT 15, and then 20 of those who become five the circle wizards according to the statistics I totally made up this morning and so 2% of people become 5 the circle wizards, conditional on them having INT 15. The symbol is easy to remember because you can imagine that, on the right side, it shows a wide pool of people with INT 15, diminishing on the left side to a narrower pool of people who have INT 15 and are 5 the circle wizards. So far away that there is no distance and no time between here and there. Thelem is trying for the first time to look up how statistics work on our new home planet. The conditionalization operator is written, the probability of X given Y, using a neat, symmetrical vertical bar. It doesn't weigh much against all the other bad news she's seen in the last day, but it is still not great news about how sane statistical mathematics is liable to be in this place. So it's sort of like in logic, where you have a starting premise from which you can deduce further things according to rules. Except instead of a starting premise, it's a starting probability, says Merit Cell. I'm not going to put you in the holding cell for that, but only because I didn't actually ask the advanced question you just went and answered. Yes. 
though to state it more exactly, the right-hand side of the operator represents a starting set of worlds, such that we consider the probability of the left-hand side's event only within those worlds. We are not interested in the probability that a random Chelish citizen is a five-the-circle wizard. The total contribution there would be greater, from ENT-16S, or so it sounds like from what Carissa said. We're not interested in the probability that a random Chelish citizen is an INT-15 and becomes a five-the-circle wizard. We're interested in the probability that, if we select a random Chelish citizen and then narrow our focus to only those worlds in which the random selection produced an INT-15, what is the chance within those worlds that the person becomes a five-the-circle wizard? Having assumed this fact away, it indeed becomes a premise for further deductions, as you say just as if we were asking about whether it's valid that Y implies X, and for purposes of that validity are allowed to just assume Y is true. While asking about the probability that somebody becomes a 5-the-circle wizard, conditional on INT-15, we have available the assumed fact of their INT-15-ness. Merit Cell, who wants very badly to be in the holding cell, looks cheered about this. Keltham has deduced as much, but he's not putting her in there until it reaches the point where he estimates she's answering questions too fast and disadvantaging other students from learning. That's what it takes to get put in the holding cell, and for so long as Marichel hasn't forced him to toss her in by threatening the other students with spoilers, she'll just have to try harder in order to get in. Anyways, as a basic comprehension check, how about if everyone invents and writes down a conditional probability? including the underlying P where Y and P cur and Y. First, in a case you're allowed to just make up. Then, a realistic case, something where you know, or can constrainedly guess, the actual statistics. No extreme stats where it's 100% or 0% of something. Raise an open hand if you're done, closed hand if you think you can't do it. He's not expecting the latter, but why trust what you can cheaply verify? Pilar who again has less practice than most Chelish citizens in her position with needing to constrain her own thought processes, gets it last. It takes her longer to work past her brain's repeated generation of forbidden suggestions that she can't write down for Keltham to check, like the probability that a citizen in Ostenso is a last-wall spy. Eventually, Pilar does get a made-up example about the chance a three-yard circle priest ever reaches forth a circle, and a real example about the chance she scores in the top 10% of class, given that she scores in the top two-thirds of the class. She remembered and tracked this statistic because it determines who punishes who. But Keltham doesn't need to know why Pilar remembers it. Somebody really should punish her for being slowest, but she can see about that later. Quickly checking confirms that everybody got it basically right. Modulo Yaisa, who divided the number of girls who became wizards, by the number of wizards, to get the probability that a girl becomes a wizard, which, Yaisa maybe just needs to actually think about the meanings of the numbers instead of writing symbols. Keltham was probably ever trained to do that as a kid, but he doesn't know how he was trained. It's the sort of thing that gets buried implicitly into learning something else. Maybe visualize the scaffolding between the numbers in reality like you could see it with Detect Magic. Yaisa smiles like this is not at all the most horrifying thing that has happened since, well, she was going to say, since Kuthites attacked, but actually getting something wrong which everybody else got right is more horrifying than that. And to top it off, 
She's still incredibly confused about the concept here and imagining scaffolding isn't the helpful kind of advice at all. At least, she's not going to be punished. All right, let's try plowing back into how parsing everything into probabilities works. Once you've practiced these skills hard enough, they become mostly innate, and you hardly need to resort to making up numbers in cases where you don't have numbers. Keltham can think of occasions in the last few days where he's made up numbers, but he's mostly needed to do that because of literally landing in another universe. And then a lot of those occasions would be weird to use as examples. There's a potential example from a conversation he just had with Asmodia, which is too weird to use, or so Keltham tells the classroom. And another example just from today's lunch, when Carissa and Ione and Pilar supposedly all went off to get invisibility copied, and it was exactly the three most obviously special girls from a group of eleven girls. Even though copy invisibility isn't specialness laden, but the hypothesis Keltham was actually updating is again too weird to talk about. Actually, if Keltham thinks back earlier, there's a less weird example. If you try to find a weird book at Ostenso Wizard Academy's library, so there's just one local copy, but most people wouldn't usually need to borrow it. What's the chance that it's already checked out when you first try to get it? Everybody close your eyes. Think about the probabilities in your experience. Put your hand all the way down for zero. All the way up for one, closed fist to defy the question. Why does he keep using examples that are relevant to lies? Maybe because everything's relevant to lies. Is lying here authorized? Yes, you can imply books are checked out of libraries more often than they in fact are. The girls mostly put their hands somewhere around halfway. The back of Ioni's mind is now calculating exactly how unlikely it is to randomly pick those three girls from a group of twelve, and mostly getting really fucking unlikely, what the fuck were you thinking? And while that was theoretically Savar's responsibility to catch, and Sevar made up the particular excuse she did. Part of Ioni still believes deep down that a senior security is about to have a very unhappy conversation with her about this. It shows on her face not at all. She still grew up in Chelyak's. Ione puts her hand a third of the way up. Alter Ione has been checking out weirder books than cleric spell compendiums. More agreement than he'd have expected? Okay to open eyes. For the record... My estimate is for the average weird book I check out, not the particular weird book I think you're thinking of. <laughs> right. Well, this happened when I asked Ione if I could borrow a compendium of cleric spells, and she said that the book existed but was checked out already. I then considered two possible ways the world could be, and how likely those worlds would be to generate what I observed. In one possible world, I could have been in, I reasoned. The library actually had plenty of books with all the cleric spells, but those books contained spells that Chelish governance would rather I not know about, or Annie wasn't sure that was not true, given poor general circulation of information around Project Lawful. So she told me there was only one such book, and it was already checked out. If the world is one where Chelish governance is generally trying to keep me and my capabilities under control— how likely am I to be stonewalled on a book of cleric spells while they try to quickly print up a new one without all the spells they don't want me to know about? My guess there was around 3-4, or 75%. It's not 100%, because maybe they've already got an altered book printed, for example, and in that case, they don't have to claim it's not there. In the other possible world, there's an ordinary library situation on which Ioni reports truthfully, 
Then we ask how likely it is that there'd really be only one book with a compendium of half the economically important magic, even if the library is mainly aimed at wizards. And also, this book is already checked out. In Death Elan, that'd be very improbable. Here, I guessed 30%. Keltum is writing on the white wall. The chance of having no book, given that it's a conspiracy, is 75%. The chance of having no book, given that it's an ordinary situation, is 30%. Now, what is the lawful way to think when you find yourself in that situation? Can you say whether or not I should then think the book was being hidden from me? Don't bring in all the other facts you know that might be relevant. Just as a matter of math in the law of probability, is there anything obvious you can do, any other conclusion you can derive, with the information written on the wall so far? Why did she take this job? Because she's the only person who even might be able to do it, and that's worth at least three wishes and a lot of spell silver to hell. It depends on what you considered likelier previously, Meritzel says. It's likelier than you thought before. Though if I were running a conspiracy on you, I'd not tell you Ioni had magic library powers. Okay, Meritzel, that's twice in a row. Go to the overly advanced student holding cell and use message next time. And yes, that's a fair point about Ioni telling me about her magic library powers in the first place. But all that stuff falls into the category of, please don't bring in all the other facts you know. Keltham writes on the white wall. Have. The probability of no book given conspiracy equals the probability of no book and conspiracy divided by the probability of conspiracy, and that is 75%. The probability of no book given ordinary equals the probability of no book and ordinary divided by the probability of ordinary, and that is 30%. This is as far as we can get by applying the definitions of terms we know, and it doesn't obviously let us derive any further interesting facts or quantities. Now. What I want to know is the chance that there's a conspiracy going on, or that things are ordinary, given that I'm now nearly certain, except for insanity, or stranger weirdness. By the way, your language needs a shorter word for that, that I was told there was no book of cleric spells available in the Ostenso library. We could write the quantity I'm interested in as follows. Want. The probability of conspiracy given no book. The probability of ordinary given no book. Let's talk a moment about the meaning of that term I just wrote down. First, in both the numerator and denominator, we're conditioning on being in a world in which I was told there was no book. Second, starting from inside that world, we narrow it down, in the numerator, to the worlds where there's a conspiracy. And in the denominator, worlds where it's an ordinary library situation and an honest Ione. By dividing these two numbers, we narrow them down into one number, and that one number is a quantity telling me the relative odds of the conspiracy world and the ordinary world. It's how many times more probable the conspiracy world is than the ordinary world. This single quantity might say, for example, conspiracy is twice as likely as ordinary, or conspiracy is one-third as likely as ordinary. Why phrase it that way? instead of just asking how likely conspiracy is in an absolute sense, after observing no book. Why not ask for an answer that says, if I see no book, a conspiracy is 20% probable, or some such. Because to get an absolute probability for conspiracy given no book, I'd have to consider every other plausible hypothesis that competes with the governance conspiracy, including, for example, 
that Cade and Kalian suddenly mind-controlled Ione to answer falsely, in a way that governance had nothing to do with. By dividing the conspiracy probability and the ordinary probability, we can ask about the relative chances there, without dragging in all other possible hypotheses involving, say, Caden Kalian. Mathematically speaking, what further information do I need to derive that quantity I want, from the quantities I have? Need. What? Asmodia quickly expands definitions on her scrap paper and cancels terms a moment later. The probability of conspiracy and no book divided by the probability of no book times the probability of conspiracy and no book. The probability of ordinary and no book divided by the probability of no book times the probability of ordinary and no book. Shortly after, Asmodia calls out prediction and messages. Keltham, to which Keltham nods. Carissa is distracted by being annoyed with Keltham for being too hard to deceive. Why couldn't they have gotten a stupid Dothilani? Why couldn't they have gotten a properly evil one? If she doesn't learn this stuff and learn it very thoroughly, then she's going to lose. She wants to know how many times more likely a conspiracy is if there's no book. It's not a real problem to do with a real conspiracy. It's just a bunch of meaningless symbols on a page, and she needs to cancel some terms and... prediction. Meritzel is not nearly as sure of how you'd go about this on the math side, but she knows the feel of the answer already. The thing you want is how suspicious to be. And obviously to know how suspicious to be, you need to know how probable the thing you're suspicious of is. If someone says there's a stray dog, that's less suspicious than if they say there's a dragon and she just has to make the numbers on the paper say the thing that's obviously true. Prediction. The concept of being so lawful that you can figure out laws authority hasn't told you about is one that Pilar is still struggling with. There is little she will not do for her lord Asmodeus, however, and it has been made clear enough to her that this work is important. There's also not many ways you can go down this path if you only do the derivations that are allowed, and that... Pilar is good at. The probability of no book and conspiracy, divided by the probability of conspiracy times, the probability of no book, and conspiracy times the probability of ordinary. The probability of no book and ordinary, divided by the probability of ordinary times, the probability of no book, and ordinary times, the probability of conspiracy. She struggles momentarily what to do from there, but then she gets it. The probability of no book and conspiracy divided by the probability of conspiracy times, the probability of conspiracy times, the probability of no book and conspiracy times the probability of conspiracy given no book. The probability of no book and ordinary divided by the probability of ordinary times, the probability of ordinary times, the probability of no book and ordinary times, the probability of ordinary given no book. I have the answer in symbols but I'm not quite sure what it means now that I have it, Pilar says. He'll wait for others to catch up, and then explain. The key quantity needed is the probability of conspiracy divided by the probability of ordinary, or any other quantity which determines that one, which for this example means how likely Keltham thought conspiracy versus ordinary was before the absent book observation. Say... If Keltham previously thought a conspiracy was 10% as likely as the ordinary world, 
and then he saw the no-book observation, which in Keltham's estimate was approximately two. Five times as likely if there's a conspiracy. Then in the ordinary world, the result is that a conspiracy then becomes 25% as likely as the ordinary world. So it goes from a tenth as likely to a quarter as likely. Meritzel's observation is that Keltham also ought to take into account that Ione told him about her book powers in the first place, even though that makes it harder for governance to control Keltham's information and potentially makes him suspicious if they try to. Let's say that's one-twentieth as likely in the conspiracy world than in the ordinary one. Not impossible. There's weird side possibilities where that could happen, because governance wasn't on the ball there. But yeah, sure. Unlikely. So if Keltham took that argument at face value, he'd then multiply conspiracy a quarter as likely as ordinary, by observation, a twentieth as likely on conspiracy as ordinary, and get an eightieth as likely. But then, of course, we have to consider how the three most obvious, interesting background girls, Carissa, Ione, and Pilar, all disappeared at lunch today, supposedly to copy invisibility spells. Since invisibility has nothing to do with interesting backgrounds, the probability of randomly getting that set of three women selected from twelve possibilities is twelve multiplied by eleven, multiplied by ten, divided by three, multiplied by two, multiplied by one, or two hundred twenty to one. So the new odds of conspiracy over ordinary are an 80th as likely times, 220 times as likely, or a bit less than three times as likely, 2.75 times as likely to be exact. Keltham should therefore now consider himself 2.75 times as likely to be in a dark governance conspiracy world than an ordinary world. Does that reasoning sound correct to everyone? And no. Oh, and this should hopefully be obvious from lesson context. But if you know an actual real story that totally refutes that whole argument, Ione, Carissa, Pilar, or anyone else who happens to know for sure, don't just blurt it out yet. She has a lie prepared, but fine, then. Okay, I won't explain, but it seems like it's some kind of error for that to be 220 times likelier if... Oh, wait, I can formalize that. There are possible non-random explanations for the event which aren't the specific theory you have. Carissa, even if you don't just tell them whatever the exact story is, you're not allowed to tell them the abstract form of the answer generalized from your knowledge of whatever the exact story is. You, Ioni, and Pilar are all sitting this one out. Asmodia, Marichel, you're allowed to answer too this time after a one-minute pause because an obvious avenue for this challenge, in advance of formalizing anything, is to try to say informally what's wrong with my reasoning, and then formalize it. My guess is that you two don't have as much of an advantage at informal argument, so it's safe to let you out of the holding cell temporarily. I could be wrong. Carissa has an interesting backstory, says Gregoria. Apparently not on the same level as Ioni and Pilar, by Golarian standards, but if you look at it from my perspective— randomly landing next to an INT 18 third circle with better spellcraft than fifth circles with intelligence headbands, who can scaffold, dispel, silver, six feet away, etc., is still a pretty interesting background, even leaving out some other things. Though there's also the seed of a stronger counter-argument there, if you want to double down on it and think you can translate it more into the language of probability. Any wizard who's the staff wizard for their unit at the World Wound is going to be really good at something. Gregoria says. If you're walking down the street and meet someone that cool, something weird happened. 
If you wander into a random fortress at the world wound, it's not... I don't know if that's in the direction of the stronger counter-argument. It just feels like you're double-counting or something. And if the group had been different people and later you'd discovered, I don't know, that I'm the bastard daughter of the Baron of Aranes, then you could say that was proof of a conspiracy too. I agree that's something to be wary of in general. You don't want to look at what happened and afterwards draw an exact category around it. In this case, though, I had in fact formed Carissa, Ioni, Pilar, and possibly Asmodia as a large, distinguished mental category, in advance of seeing Carissa, Ioni, and Pilar vanish mysteriously at lunch. It wasn't at all drawn up afterwards, in this particular case. Not to completely throw your fine argument out the window, however, let's say that the conspiracy hypothesis really allowed for two possibilities. First, that Carissa, Ione Pilar would vanish at lunch, and second, that Carissa, Ione Pilar Asmodia would vanish at lunch. So we now have the new probabilities, Keltham writes some more. The probability of Carissa, Ione Pilar, given conspiracy, equals one half. The probability of Carissa, Ione Pilar Asmodia, given conspiracy, equals one half. The probability of Carissa, Ione Pilar, given ordinary, equals one over 220. Therefore, the odds ratio of conspiracy given Carissa Ione Pilar to ordinary given. Carissa Ione Pilar equals 1 over 80 times, 1 half divided by 1 over 220, which simplifies to 1 over 80 times 110, resulting in 1.375. So, in the light of your new argument, I shall concede that the nefarious governance conspiracy is only half as relatively likely as I previously calculated, 11 slash 8 this, as likely as an ordinary world, not 22 slash 8 this as likely. But this was surely the only error in my calculations and my totally lawful argument. I doubt you can find any others. Part of Keltham's brain also wants to start tracking the possibility that Gregoria is in fact the bastard, daughter of the Baron, of whatever, and Keltham tells it to shut up. Either they'll end up dating or not. If they were a conspiracy... Probably they wouldn't sneak off right in front of you very suspiciously, says Yaisa. Clearly that's exactly what they want me to think. Yaisa has absolutely no idea what to make of that. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.